So as we begin to think about this last of the big Ephesians passages, all through Ordinary Time we've been studying Ephesians, and uh, next week we'll do a wrap-up, but this is really the last of the kind of big, uh, kind of one big chunk of a topical setting, or section I should say. And so as we start tonight, I want you to just think about the incredible advances in science, even just since you were a child. So whatever your favorite category of that might be, you might think of space, like maybe you love the Hubble telescope or something and finding water on moons and planets and stuff. Maybe that really fascinates you. Or maybe you think about DNA stuff and stem cell research or Maybe you think of the amazing tests that can be done now in the medical field and some of the imaging that just would have been unheard of uh, a generation ago. Maybe you think of neuroscience. Uh, Maybe you're an engineer and you think of the incredible engineering feats that go on today that, again, no one would have dreamed of. Maybe you think kind of loosely of technology or maybe you like math and you're into quantum physics Whatever your thing is, just stop for a moment and let yourself be stunned and amazed by the advances in science just in our lifetime. And then let's ask ourselves, does this mean we know more about the non-physical reality? Has this advanced our understanding of the spirit world at all. I'm not suggesting it hasn't, but it's worth thinking about. Has all of our advances in science and technology, has it made it made us smarter than Jesus? Who he thought that there was a spiritual battle going on. And so again, as we place ourselves before this text tonight, I just want us to think, this is why some of you who've been around for a while have heard me say more than once that you will not follow Jesus if you have to hesitate before saying he's smart. You just won't. Not really. I mean, you might say you believe in him, but you actually won't follow him because either he's a little kooky, like he thought there were things happening with demons and said he saw Satan fall from heaven and you know, is like, that's the same Jesus who said, my peace I give to you, you know. You know, we take those kind of sayings of Jesus and we put them on plaques on our wall, right? Whenever Jesus says a nice thing like, my burden is easy, my yoke is light, you know. We turn it into a song, right? (laughs) Or we put it on a plaque on a wall in our kitchen, you know, those pretty little sayings of Jesus that bring us comfort. But what about his worldview? I mean, he had a definite, concrete worldview. He, he had a way of thinking about what's actually going on. And so did Paul, of course, picking up on what Jesus said. I mean, if you just kind of simply put it together, you know, Jesus says, I'm sending you out like lambs amongst wolves. Well, doesn't that just make you want to go, oh, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I mean, have you ever seen a wildlife show? 
you know where you got these lambs, maybe in, maybe in New Zealand or Australia, and they're standing in a field, and the, and the camera, you know, gets real down low and pans over to this grass, and there's this pack of wolves walking. And they set up all this tension, right? The little lambs lift their heads up and look around, you know, they're skittish anyway, right? They just build all this tension because there's this wolf there. And Jesus says, that's the reality I'm sending you into. You are going to be like lambs amongst wolves. And this is largely an unseen reality. What Paul calls principalities and powers. But I think that we tend to have kind of three bad reactions to this whole notion. Either we ignore it. We just don't really believe in angels or Satan or demons. Not really. We don't really believe in principalities and powers. They're, they're not a part of our actual walk, really, not usually. Or for some people, that's some people. For other people, they have kind of a cartoonish or unhealthy interest in this that leads sometimes to kind of a paranoia. You know, they're anxious all the time because, you know, there's demons everywhere. And then I think for lots of us, there's just kind of a Laodicean lukewarmness. They just, ah, I don't know. I don't really have an opinion. I don't really care. But what's important about this, as you know for me, I'm always wanting to bring this back to our basic formation into Christ-likeness. And what's important about this is for us to acknowledge that the spiritual struggle is more than temptation. It's more than making sure we pray. It's more than making sure that we read our Bibles or that we're forgiving and, and keeping short accounts with people. That's all included, but it's more than that. And these texts, if anything, tonight, they ask us a couple questions. Who and where is the enemy? Who is he? Where is the enemy? And what do we do? So what I'd like you to consider with me tonight as we get into this is this thought that there's more to evil than the sum total of all of our sins. There's more to evil than even generals apparently having sex under the desk with some author. It doesn't matter how weird or bizarre or big or noteworthy, you know, how much it's on People Magazine or whatever. You can gather up all the People Magazine, you know, covers and the National Enquirer, and you gather all the sum total of all of our sin, and there's more to evil than that. That's the worldview of Jesus and Paul. That even if you stack all that up, there's more going on. Paul calls it the devil's schemes. He says that they're powerful, they're wicked, they're cunning. And so for Jesus, the sober reality is this, that there are kingdoms in conflict. That for whatever reason, God in his loving wisdom continues to allow rival kingdoms to exist. I don't get it. I wish he wouldn't. Jesus said he'd come to bring the kingdom but we live in this time between the times where the kingdom's inaugurated in our midst and sometimes we see major sparks of kingdom reality in our midst. Miracles happen and stuff. But on the other hand, the kingdom's not yet consummated. It will come again in his, his second coming. And living in this tension between the times, we live in this conflict. And so Paul says, be strong. So those of you who have sat with us in this Ephesian series, 
you know that Paul has just soared in his rhetoric and writing, talking about the glorious purposes of God in and through the church and the, just the stunning things that, that God has done to bring the church about. Remember Paul's amazing prayers that what God really wants to have done in the church would be done. But now as Paul begins to close the letter, he says, all this happens in a context. All that God's doing in and through the church happens in this context of an ongoing spiritual battle. So when the Lord sends them out, as Dennis read to us tonight, sends out the 72 or the 70, sending them out like lambs among wolves, uh, you might think of it this way. I'm sending you out as fish in the air. And you're going to flop and you're not going to like it. And it's going to feel uptight and your little, I don't know if fish have lungs, but go with me here. You know, your little lungs are going to get upset about it. And if fish have brains, you know, your little brains are going to get upset. And there's going to be times where you're going to feel like a fish out of water. That what's native to you, God, his kingdom, the people of God, what we call the church, what's native to you is sometimes going to be bombarded by a reality that is not native to you. And you're going to have these big tensions. So casting out demons, whether we like it or not, was a regular part of Jesus's ministry. And Jesus said that demon expulsions were a sign that the kingdom of God had come. Jesus said that Satan was the prince of this world. And so when you see that battle as Paul was seeing it, you know, right on the ground in Ephesus, maybe you remember the night that, the night that my friend Mike McNichols taught. And he taught us about the sort of social, political power that men had over women. That's a classic sign of what Paul would call a principality and power. But then you had the Greek goddess Artemis who was causing women to rise up and say, no, we're the top of the heap and, and fight men. Classic example of a principality in power, of a personal force that in a sense rallies troops in this demonic hierarchy to foment this kind of stuff. And so what Paul's wanting us to see tonight is that when you see that battle, that's why I started with your basic worldview. Otherwise, this passage about armor, it's just Sunday school stuff. Remember the little felt breastplate of righteousness, right? And the little felt boots, you know, for your feet. Shed. That's, it just gets reduced to that unless you share Paul and Jesus's worldview. But if you share their worldview, then suddenly this is not just a cute little Sunday school lesson with these six little bits of armor that we can put on this little felt guy or these days on a PowerPoint, right? The, the little breastplate would fly in, right? And, and uh, show up, you know, and it'd be, an, it'd be a nice little lesson. Except for if you really see the worldview that Jesus and Paul saw, then you see the need for the armor and you see Paul's goal that we would be strong in the Lord. So now get out your Ephesians passage, if you would, and just see if we can follow Paul's logic here, that we would be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now, this is interesting because the, our English there reads be strong, and I don't, I don't have a quarrel with that. Um, except for it misses a really important little Greek nuance there where this is actually passive. If you read, be strong, it sounds like, well, something I gotta do. Like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling this warfare. I, gotta, I, gotta, I better power up and be strong. But it really is something more like this. Be made strong. Be made powerful. 
in this classic Pauline phrase, in union with Christ. So in Christ, be made powerful. That is to say, hold out against the attack. Hold on to the hand that pulled you out of the river while you were choking and drowning. That same hand that pulled you up when you first came to faith, hold on to that hand is kind of the idea here. Be made strong. See what I'm saying? Receive a strength that's not of your own. You were fighting in the water, you were drowning, you're trying to get out, your sins were overcoming you, your hatred, your bitterness, whatever your thing was. It was overwhelming you. You were choking and dying in it and you were made strong as somebody gave you their hand, you see? And so Paul's saying, hold on to that. Don't get distracted. Okay, I just want to suggest to you, I don't suppose I could prove this, but I want to strongly suggest to you that it's no accident that we lose our worldview. I mean, I lose it every time I see an advertisement for a beautiful BMW. Or I'm reminded that I'm not wearing the right glasses, that there's a new hipper version of Oakley out. And I probably should have that. You know, I mean, I have to stay relevant right? I mean, are you feeling me here? We are constantly bombarded with stuff that, that, that tells us that what's really most real about life is what we don't presently have. And then unless you have everything, unless you're experiencing everything, unless you're knowing everybody who's important, then you're not really living life it was meant to be. And so we get drawn out unto that. And Paul knows how distracting this is. And so he says, don't get distracted, just kind of stand. Putting on, now as he says here, the full armor of God. So that, and that's very important, that little bit of logic there. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And now here's where we're right back to worldview. For Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against these uh, very sort of technical things against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, just try saying that to your psychologist. Well, what's really happening to me is, you know, blah, blah, blah. It, you know, it, it just, it's difficult. And so, well, what are we to make of this? And in a brief sermon, I can only say a couple things quickly. A, the New Testament envisions personages. We can't get away with just kind of nondescript, you know, uh, in that was that movie, The Force Be With You. We, we can't get away with that sort of indescript, that's not what's in view here. These are personages who sometimes we can rightly say that they seem to somehow rally together or influence big issues of human society, education, politics, commerce. They do sometimes get together and influence these big structures or institutions. But I don't think we can, like some people have done with this, take out the personal part of it. A, a, an actual person, a devil, demons, people who do things two things. One is, I don't think the text would actually stand for that. But secondly, and to me equally important, is we don't want to be left hating our society. If you think education's our enemy, well, how are you going to have a kind conversation with a public school teacher who's busting her rear end every day to make ends meet and to love these fourth graders? But if you wake up every morning hating 
education because it's a classic example of a principality in power, you're not going to do it. Or if you wake up hating the healthcare system, how are you going to love a nurse who pours out his or her heart night after night after night at some hospital? You won't do it. So we can't let our, our hearts get filled with suspicion, cynicism, or even hatred for the big systems of our world. But I think we can understand that sometimes these personages are at work such that we really do have kind of institutional evil, you may say. So Paul says, this being the case, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, and we might say here, you know, kind of our day of evil or our moment of evil, when it comes that we might be able to stand. And this, I think, is very important to us. Very important, I think, to us as, as Christians and as a new church to just feel, just stand. Just don't be blown around, just stand. I mean, feel the weight of that, the, the weight of just standing, the groundedness, so that we don't have to end up then giving way to manipulation we don't end up having to then fix or control things by technology or take things into our hands by violence, but just stand. Think of the people in the human lows of history in the last 2,000 years, in the human lows of history who just stood for the Lord. They couldn't fix Nazism. They couldn't burn down the Russian gulags. Pick a point in history. But they just stood. When their day of evil came, they just stood, knowing that God was with them. And so now Paul tells us how to do this. Take on the belt of truth. Buckle it around your waist. Um, The belt of truth is not a belt like you'd think of like a prize fighter's belt or something. It was actually an inner thing that, you know, they wore sort of flowing robes and you couldn't fight or run or even garden with your robes flowing. And so they would pull them together tight. And, and so they would pull their robes in, then they would put on the rest of their armor, whatever they were doing that day. So Paul calls this, this belt of truth. And I always feel like I need to remind ourselves of this occasionally because there's just such a battering Uh, coming against Christianity today, that we just need to say the Christian message is either true or it's meaningless. I mean, this is this stuff that we talk about from the Bible is either actually true or it's just nutty meaningless. There's really no in between. Either Jesus knew what he was talking about and there is an unseen world and these kinds of power conflicts happen or we're all just kind of nuts. And it's a very fundamental choice that we all have to make. Either what Jesus is saying corresponds to reality or it doesn't. And Paul calls this the sort of first inner thing. Make that decision first. This is the belt of truth, that there is truth. As much as our society struggles with that today, and I'm totally patient with that. Totally patient with modern hubris being chastened, totally fine with the modern scientific project being chastened if it needs it. I'm totally fine with all that. 
But that can't lead us to, there's nothing that sinks up our life. There's nothing that takes the flowing little, um, you know, folds of our life and somehow pulls them all together in a way that then lets us put on the rest of the stuff through which we do life. Second, he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. And this is not just putting on our virtue or our character. It includes that, but it's not just that. Righteousness um, for Paul is often the notion that God is putting the world to rights. And that God's putting the world to rights includes putting our virtue and our character to rights. And so, so Paul says, put this on. Put on this breastplate. It was um, kind of like a big, almost full body shield. Um, no, sorry, that's the shield of faith. The breastplate of righteousness. Put this on knowing that God is going to put that together. And then the shield of faith is like that. You, you take up this, you have this breastplate on, and then you have this kind of secondary piece of armor that's like a big shield, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So in warfare at this time, a big part of warfare was either throwing or shooting flaming darts. And so if you just had a wood shield, they could, of course, catch the shield on fire. So they would cover them with animal skins or leather, and it would put out the fiery darts. And so Paul's picturing you with this breastplate on and then the shield of faith. Um, Faith being, as I've said before, loyalty and obedience to Jesus based in confident trust in him. The shield of faith is not a mental posture. The shield of faith is not mental assent to bullet points of doctrine. The shield of faith is loyalty and obedience to Jesus that's based in a confident trust in him. That's faith, a confident trust in him. So Paul sees us covered like that. And then next, your feet being fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Uh, There was a, a legend in Paul's time that the Roman boots, the boots that only Roman soldiers have, were so good that they were difference making in every Roman battle, in every Roman war. Just the boots they had were so much superior than everybody else's that they could stand when others couldn't stand. So if you think of, that's silly, but think of golf technology. They're always coming out with new shoes that help you stand better. And uh, Paul's picturing something like that, that, that these Roman soldiers that Paul has in his mind here had these boots on that he now likens here to a readiness. They position you with a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. That is to say, a knowledge of and dependency on the gospel gives us, Paul says, stand firm footing. And then he says, take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation is simply the notion that having been rescued from the ultimate enemy, death, that we will also be rescued from any of these secondary enemies. And then finally he says, take on the the sword of the spirit, which is the word of the Lord. And this one is really easy to see. The sword of the spirit. This is the, a sword could be defensive like the rest of these, but a sword obviously could also be used offensively. And the easiest way to think about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of the Lord, is Jesus's temptation in the wilderness, right? Three times the enemy comes to him. Three times Jesus uses the sword of the word of the Lord to defeat the temptations that are being put before him by the evil one. So, Have there been advances in science? Yep. Absolutely stunning. Beyond anything I I know I would have ever dreamed of. 
But we still see evil at work all over the world today. And I think you have to admit with me that occasionally when you open your computer in the morning, you see evil that seems like it transcends even human evil. You'll see something that somebody did to somebody and, you, and, and it goes through your head, gosh, that's not even human. Yeah, you're right. Or you'll see some event where some person in power has done something and you say, how could they do that? That's not even human. And every time you think that, you're getting a little hint of the worldview of Jesus and Paul. But again, bringing this back to our own formation, what if we also noted the evil within us? Our own instincts, our own drives, our own needs for affirmation and acceptance, our desires for security that feel like sometimes they're literally pulling us apart. <clears throat> where we have those Romans 7 moments like Paul where we say, that's the good that I feel so committed to wanting to do, I find myself not doing and the evil that I really don't want to have anything to do with anymore, I find myself doing it. Well, again, that's a little alert to this worldview of Jesus and Paul of this spiritual battle. So Paul here is picturing a spirit world that's kind of in panic because of the resurrection. And Jesus' message and his people are growing. It's challenging the powers and the authorities. The powers and the authorities are fighting back. The wolves are angry and prowling. They're opposing the gospel, and they're opposing the church that the gospel's creating. That's what Paul's seeing. Jesus said, go. And I'm telling you, the demons are going to flee. And so now all this upset starts to happen, and Paul can see it happening in his life and around Ephesus and, you know, chained probably to this guard in a prison in Rome, he uses a Roman soldier, probably not the guard, but a, a Roman soldier to unpack how it is that we might stand in this spiritual battle. So let me close by uh, showing you how Eugene has this in the message. This is for keeps. This is a life or death fight to the finish against the devil and all his angels. You're up against far more than you can handle on your own. So take all the help you can get. Every weapon God has issued. So when it's all over but the shouting, you'll still be on your feet, standing. So he has a moment of quiet now. I wonder, what do you notice about yourself as you hear this passage tonight? What do you notice about yourself? Maybe your worldview, whatever. And or where and how do you notice God giving you resources to help you?